I thought I could do more. I saw so many e-commerce businesses that just frankly were not well run and they could really benefit from best practices. You know, I was talking to entrepreneurs all the time. You know, they were like, I don't have any money. So I ran out of inventory. So I sold 33% less stuff. And I was like, did you consider a line of credit? And they're like, what's that? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like there's just so much, you know. And again, remember, this is 2010 too. Originally, things have gotten better, but there's still a lot of unsophisticated, you know, operators out there. And I just said, there's a huge opportunity to buy these businesses and execute better. You know, and it's not a knock on these founders because when you're, when you're a small group of people, either, you know, metaphorically or sometimes literally in a garage, right? Like you can only be so good at everything because you're a mile wide and you're an inch deep. So you're only so good at Facebook ads and SEO and supply chain and, you know, capital allocation and like all these things. But for us, like with some scale, I can pay several people to think about only Facebook ads all day long, right? So like just by definition, we're going to be better. So I can do that in every functional area and execute better in every functional area than the entrepreneur who's spread thin. And that's basically our thesis. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. Bill D'Alessandro, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Sure thing, man. I've been, uh, I think we've been trying to schedule this for like four months now. Like you broke your arm. Like I'm trying to have a kid, like we're squeezing this in. I know. Let's get it in. Bill's having a kid uh, next week. So we need to get this done. We might get a call, you know, midway through this that you're headed to the hospital. So we're going to cover a lot today. Let's just start out with kind of the early story of kind of your career and kind of leading into starting Element Brands, which you're running today. Yeah, sure. So I am a reformed investment banker. I majored in finance and computer science and entrepreneurship in school. I uh, kind of had a couple businesses as a kid. I uh, sold my first business uh, actually before I graduated from college. It was a software company. We uh, helped college groups like sports teams and uh, fraternities and stuff manage their basically what Facebook groups is now. Um, we had software for that, uh, sold that business, uh, before I graduated and then went into investment banking for a couple of years, um, and had a formative experience in investment banking. We sold a business for a guy, uh, he made pita chips and hand soap and like those veggie straws, you know, like in the, in the chip aisle. Um, he had $5 million of EBITDA, uh, no college degree and five employees. Uh, and we sold his business for like $60 million. And I remember being at the closing table and he came to the closing in camo pants. Uh, and we were sitting there, you know, in our fancy suits thinking that we were hot shit. Uh, and I went, this guy's taking home, you know, almost all the money here. And we think we're the cool ones. And I went, holy crap, I'm on the wrong side of the table. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and, th and that was kind of the original formative experience for me that said, I got to get out of finance. Uh, and start a business. Uh, and that was this coupled with reading for our work week, like almost at exactly the same time, uh, and led to what uh, I've described as an entrepreneurial aneurysm. 
And I said, I got to make a change, man. <laughs> well, you, well, you said you said that uh, you said you read the four hour work week and it made you want to start a consumer product. And then you go on to describe your business, which we'll talk about in a separate question is part four hour work week, part Berkshire, part Procter and Gamble. But let's just start with four, four hour work week. What happened in that book? Because when I think of running a, you know, a holding company with lots of e-commerce businesses, it doesn't sound like four hours a week. So tell me why it is. Yeah, so it's not. So but I feel like that book is super misunderstood and uh, just a very high level. My business, Elements Brands, we're a portfolio of e-commerce direct consumer brands. And we can get into it a little bit more uh, in a bit. So four-hour work week is super misunderstood because everybody thinks it's about working four hours a week, right? And Tim Ferriss is on record saying that he A-B tested titles and this was the A-B tested title that made, made most people buy the book. So it's selected to yeah. like, you know, peak view, right? <laughs> Um, which it definitely does. It triggers a lot of people. Um, but the the concept of 4-Hour Workweek, there's two concepts in 4-Hour Workweek that kind of blew my mind. One was the idea that you could have a startup, you could start a company, and this sounds so dumb when I say it out loud, you would start a company and make money every time you sold somebody something. Because for me, as like a you know 24-year-old idiot, you know, I thought that a startup was Facebook that it was software, that it was aggregate a bunch of eyeballs and sell them advertising, et cetera. And I read the four-hour work week and went, oh my God, like I could, you know, create a thing and sell it to people and like be profitable, which, you know, what did not really compute in my, my view of the startup world at the time. Um, there's that. And then what the book is really about is time leverage. Uh, it's about building systems and scaling your output, delegating well, using software, um, you know, process and systems. So if you wanted to, you could work four hours a week or you could work 40 hours a week and get 400 hours a week of work done. Uh, and that's what the book is really about, not sitting on the beach. Okay. So you read it and you go on to kind of build your first product. Uh, am, I, am I right that you ended up selling that and then that kind of led into Element Brands? So I actually never sold it. I still own it. Um, so that product, yeah. So that product was called KP Elements, uh, was a skin cream for a skin condition called keratosis pilaris. You ever seen people with kind of red bumps on their triceps, um, sometimes on their thighs. Um, if you're listening, there's a 50% chance this is you, uh, because it affects 50% of adults, um, in, in one way or the other, uh, including me. Uh, so I went, man, like, I think I could make, you know, a product for this. I've been Googling around, you know, what is this? How do I fix it? I've been Googling and no one's trying to sell me anything. And I went, ah, oh, there's a market here, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> so I worked with uh, contract manufacturers. You know, I kind of went on all these forums and I said, okay, people are using foot cream. They're using avocado oil. They're using all this weird stuff to get results for their KP. Like, you know, what are the commonalities? Um, and I found, you know, identified three or four things. I researched them further. Okay, it makes sense that those things would help. Uh, called up contract manufacturers and said, Hey, make me a cream with ABC in it, make it white, make it smell pretty good, you know, send me a sample. Uh, and I mean, I had no formal training in this at all. Like, you know, I'm just kind of winging it as we, as we go. And, you know, you know, of course, you know, that's why you lean on a, a contract manufacturer, you know, that, that can do this in an FDA compliant way. Um, and so we launched the product, um, you know, in 2010 and I was shipping orders out of my apartment, um, kind of like, and you know, I was skiing on Tuesdays. I was living in Boulder, Colorado at the time. Um, you know, as I was, I was living the life, right. You know, I kind of won the four hour work week game. Um, and then I kind of, was like, this is boring. You know, like, I think, I, I think I meant for more than this. Like, I think I can make a bigger dent in the world than skiing a lot, you know, and, and 
having this kind of internet uh, ATM that was KP Elements. And that's when uh, KP Elements became Elements Brands. And I decided to kind of raise the vision a little bit. All right. Well, we're going to get into the the weeds of the business, but let's just start paint a picture of what how Element, uh, what it does, how it's structured, what it's turned into along the way. Yeah. So Elements Brands, we are a whole co of direct consumer e-com brands. So we do a big chunk of our revenue through Shopify, direct consumer, a big chunk of our revenue on Amazon. Um, and then we also work with uh, you know several large retailers. We do about 15% of revenue uh, through places like Bed Bath Beyond, Petco, you know, Meyer, Walmart, Target, Kmart, those places. Um, so we are omni-channel uh, kind of house of brands, you know, kind of in the, and we'll get into kind of one part Procter and Gamble, you know, they had a lot of things right uh, in PNG. So we focus on skincare brands and pet care brands are kind of the two vertical we have decided we're building expertise in. We've got about 60 people. Um, many of whom are here in Charlotte, North Carolina, but we do hire remotely. You know, pandemic has kind of changed my view on that significantly, which we can talk about more, um, just access to the talent market. Um, so we hire, uh, we hire kind of anywhere in the American time zones, um, just because time zone I find, uh, it's pretty important if you can work together. Um, so yeah, uh, we do. And we're also very vertically integrated. So a lot of e-com brands use a ton of agencies or three PLs. So we have 52,000 square feet here in Charlotte where we do our own logistics. We even do some of our own manufacturing. Uh, and we also do almost all of our own marketing in-house too. We use uh, almost no agencies, you know, some time to time to supplement. But I think right now we're not working with any agencies. Uh, we do it all in-house. Um, so very vertically integrated. We want to control our own destiny. And the third part is your one part Berkshire Hathaway, which means to me you have permanent capital. We do, yes. Um, so we are funded. I've only ever raised uh, a couple million bucks in 2016, uh, and we're funded by uh, family offices. So we raise family office capital um, and are profitable. So we've been funded entirely from profits and one fundraising round, uh, and it will probably stay that way forever. Uh, we have an infinite hold period. Also, kind of we buy with no intention of selling, to quote the great Brent D. Shore. Yep. All right. Before we dig into it, what you you started as a, you know, you went through investment banking, you built the product, you were a ski bum for a little bit. Now you're running a hold co. Um, what do you do now as CEO? Like what's your focus kind of day to day? Yeah. So this is the crazy thing that I really didn't see coming. My focus is almost totally people. Uh, you know, I, I started it, I started a business where I was like, had no people and was skiing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and now my business is entirely managing people, you know, hiring them, setting their goals the right way, setting their comp plans the right way, pointing them the right direction and trying to hold them accountable. Uh, it's just so much of the CEO role. And I just did not see that coming uh, at all. It's that and long-term strategy, you know, and everything else is someone else's job. Okay, so you've built a, lar a large team and you're, uh, you're vertically integrated, uh, which kind of sounds like it's unique to your industry. Why have you chosen to kind of go that path? And then I want to dig into a little bit about, well, let's just start there. <laughs> because I tried it the other way and it was brutal. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's partially about control um, and it's partially about speed. Um, so I'll kind of give you uh, a, a very kind of simple example. When you work with a 3PL, third-party logistics company that might ship your orders on your behalf. Um, imagine, Chris, you go to our website, you know, you buy a blue widget. And then 10 minutes later, you change your mind and you're like, uh, actually, I wanted the red widget. You know, 
So you file a ticket, you call us or you send an email, right? Um, the way a 3PL works is, right, they're doing a lot of volume and they got to be rigid in their process. So what will happen is you'll call us and you'll go, oh, I don't want the red one. I want the blue one, actually. Um, can you switch it? Um, and, we'll go, and we would have to go, uh, sure, no problem. So then we'd have to call our 3PL and, and they would go, oh, it's already been packed. So now what I got to do is ship you the red one and the blue one uh, and either give you the one you don't want and just tell you to keep it or try to submit an RMA and get it back from you, right? It's really clunky. But in our model, we just go, sure. Uh, and the people who are packing boxes are our coworkers and they're in the same building as us, right? So we can just fix that for you, the customer, instantly. It's faster for you. It's faster for us. It's just easier. And there's so many different versions of this all up and down the supply chain when you control it all in-house. It's just faster. So why are why do more people not do it? It's daunting. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of stuff. Or is there a reason why people shy away from it? All those things. I mean, because because most people want to run a four-hour workweek business from their basement, right? You know, and like you know, that's incompatible with, you know, going to the office every day, like managing a team of, you know, pick pack shippers, hiring those people, you know, firing those people, holding them accountable, like all that. It's just messy, right? Like people don't want to do it, but it's a major advantage. So if you take your first product and you said you wanted more, um, what was there a decision to not go all in on something? Was it the idea that maybe that product could never be large enough to fulfill your vision or, you know, why did you decide let's go across and have multiple businesses as opposed to going all in on one? Yeah, it was definitely part of that. The, you know, the KP Elements product, while, you know, while it's a big market, you know, 50% of adults, it's still kind of a niche product. Um, and, you know, it kind of, I wanted to, I wanted, I thought I could do more. I saw so many e-commerce businesses that just frankly were not well run. Um, and they could really benefit from best practices. You know, I was talking to entrepreneurs all the time. You know, they were like, I don't have any money, so I ran out of inventory, so I sold 33% less stuff. And I was like, did you consider a line of credit? And they're like, what's that? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like there's just so much, you know. And again, remember, this is 2010 too. Originally, things have gotten better, but there's still a lot uh, of unsophisticated, you know, operators out there. And I just said, there's a huge opportunity to buy these businesses and execute better, you know, and it's not a knock on these founders because when you're, when you're a small group of people, either, you know, metaphorically or sometimes literally in a garage, right? Like you can only be so good at everything because you're a mile wide and you're an inch deep. Um, so you're only so good at Facebook ads and SEO and supply chain and, you know, capital allocation and like all these things. Um, but for us, like with some scale, I can pay several people to think about only Facebook ads all day long. Right. So like just by definition, we're going to be better. Um, so I can do that in every functional area and execute better in every functional area than the entrepreneur who's spread thin. And that's basically our thesis. I got it. I love it. How did you land on uh, skincare and pet care? I'm assuming trial and error or is there is there a big thesis behind it? There actually, there are some first principles behind it. I mean, we have done other things. Um, you know, we've, we've done laundry detergent in the past. We've done sunscreen in the past, which we will never do again. Um, there, there's some things that we've, we tried and, and decided we didn't like. Um, but kind of the first principles behind it are we're looking for products that are both what we call e-commerce compatible and have a lifetime value component to them. Uh, and I'll kind of break down what that means for you. So e-commerce compatible, uh, think about small, light, easy to ship, not fragile, high price points, 
right? So I'll give you like an example, like a bottle of Gatorade is not e-commerce compatible, right? It costs a dollar, right? It's cheap. Uh, it might spoil. Um, I guess, I mean, it's not fragile at least, right? Um, but there's a lot of challenges to making money selling a bottle of Gatorade on the internet. Something that is very e-commerce compatible is a $45 two ounce jar of skin cream, right? It's very revenue dense, right? I, it doesn't cost me very much to ship it. It's not fragile. Um, because you're paying $45 for it, I've got a lot of margin in there to do marketing, right? To acquire customers. Um, and then also because if you consume the skin cream, you can come back and buy it two, three, four, five times. That lifetime value, if I can bank on that, that allows me again, even more margin to do marketing, right? Because like ultimately consumer products is a marketing game. So we need to pick product categories where I'm playing on easy mode. Right. Like if I'm selling you a one time use product, you know, at a low $10 price point and you're, you know, I have no, there's no room there for marketing because it costs me five to $8 to ship it to you, yeah. you know, free shipping. Right. Yeah. So like anything kind of below $15 a unit is like the death zone for e-commerce. It's just so hard to make money. Not that some people don't, but like, I would rather play easy games than hard games. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to pick these e-commerce compatible products with lifetime values to them. And that's why skincare and pet, you know, kind of both, I mean, really pet is very similar to skincare. In fact, we have a lot of what amount to skincare products for pets. Yep. Right. Really? Um, it, yeah. Well, I mean, so like, imagine your dog gets like hot spots or has dry paws or, you know, or dry nose or things like that. We have products for that, that help. And there's um, gotta so be massive tailwinds in pet. People treat their pets oh. now sometimes better than they treat their kids. Yes, yes. So the, here's a stat that blew my mind. Um, you know, as we as we were you know learning this industry years ago, there are more companion pets, meaning dogs and cats, in America than there are children under 18. So the pet market is by that measure bigger than the kids market. Wow, I love it, uh, and growing faster by the way too. Okay, so you're running, you, you've picked your two um, kind of focus. You've also been pretty vocal and you, and you started by saying you look at companies that have 50% of their revenue um, or less on Amazon, you're in Shopify and you're some brick and mortar. Let's key in on a little bit on Amazon. Why is that an important thing for you um, that they're less than 50%? So we could talk for the rest of the podcast about this, but we won't. <laughs> so... Uh, I will avoid my soapbox here. Um, you know, obviously, you know, if you're listening, you may have heard uh, you know, a ton of capital has been raised by the FBA aggregators and Frasios of the world, you know, et cetera. Um, but the problem with kind of this Amazon-centric business model is very many of these quote, and if you're watching the video, there are huge air quotes here, yeah. <laughs> uh, quote, brands, right, that are Amazon, quote, brands are really not a brand, right? They're a position on a search result page. So like, you know, Chris's yoga mats, right? Ranks number two for yoga mats, right? And you go like, oh, this is a brand. There's so many Chris's yoga mats. Like, you know, all these women do yoga and they stare down at my logo every day. Chris's yoga mat. Yeah, like, <laughs> this is a brand, right? Um, well, guess what, Chris? If you run out of stock, you know, or your listing gets suspended or whatever, poof, right? You're gone. Someone else immediately ranks number two for the keyword yoga mats. The test to me as to whether you are a brand or not is whether people will then go, huh, 
I don't see Chris's yoga mats here. Let me fire up a new tab, type in Chris's yoga mats to Google, click through to Chris's yoga mats website and check out on your website. If you poof from Amazon tomorrow, would your customers come buy it on your website? That's a brand. If not, it's a search engine result position. Uh, and that's a much more fragile place to be. And what you're saying is a lot of these companies are just search, uh, search engine placeholders, basically. Exactly. And, you know, and they'll say, you know, well, we've got a review mode, right? We've got tons of reviews, you know, like that's, you know, we rank number two, it's rock solid. Well, yeah, until Amazon changes the algorithm, you know, like if you, if you think about like any successful retailer, right? The most successful retailers, in fact, still in this age of e-commerce, you know, like the, the TJ Maxx's, you know, like these places that create what they call the treasure hunt experience, the Costco's of the world, right? Where that like, you never know what you're going to find. When you go in here, like if you go into these retailers and it's the same for 10 years, right? Like that's going to be a pretty boring place to shop. So if you're Amazon and your SERP for yoga mats is the same for 10 years, like what's that shopping experience like? They are not incentivized to calcify their search results like that, right? And as are, a retailer. And are these companies really that big at risk where if you were number one or two, and Amazon flips the algorithm, you, you don't have any leverage kind of going forward. Um, and, and what is the benefit to Amazon switching? Is it what you said? It's just, it gets stale and you need to change things up or create competition. Like what are the, the incentives there? Well, so there's some of that, um, but Amazon might not even do it on purpose to you, right? They might not go, ah, Chris has been there number two for a while. Let's, you know, knock him down a few pegs. It might be as simple as, which is going on in mass right now, you have a supply chain hiccup, right? You can't get your yoga mats from China. And here's the quirk about selling on Amazon. When you're, if you're out of stock, they don't take back orders for you. Poof, you're gone, right? Someone else is, who's in stock is in that result position. Uh, it could be, there's all kinds of black hat stuff that goes on on Amazon. I could, I could be, I could buy your yoga mat, maybe Bill's yoga mats. I'm number four. I want to be number two. I buy Chris's yoga mat. I then leave a review that it caused me a rash and injured my child, even though, of course, that's that's not true, right? <laughs> but what will happen is the Amazon algorithm will pick up on the words rash and child. It will automatically suspend your listing because they don't want to get sued. Poof, you're gone. And now you got to argue that actually our yoga mats don't cause rashes or you know, kill children or whatever. And you feel like you're in crazy town because obviously yoga mats don't kill children. Um, but Amazon shoots first and asks questions later. You're just so platform dependent. There's a million things that could interrupt your ability to sell and have nothing to do with like Jeff Bezos trying to put a gun on your forehead. Right. right? It's not that direct. Is there anything in uh, reviews are important no matter what site you're on. Is there anything in the horizon that makes a situation like that less likely to happen? I mean, we're a total, it's obviously a fabricated review. It's, it, creates a ton of damage to a business, it seems like something that could be easily fixed, or is that just the status quo for now? You would think that, yes. I've been thinking that for going on five plus years, and it hasn't changed. Because um, when you think about Amazon's incentive, right, they don't actually care whether Chris sells a yoga mat or Bill sells a yoga mat, right? They make the same amount of money as long as the customer bought a yoga mat. So their incentive, but if, if there's even a chance that Chris's yoga mats might be killing babies, like they're going to get answered. They're going to have the answer for that in the press and probably in the court because actually there have been several cases that have upheld liability for Amazon for products sell, sold on their platform. So their incentive is if there's even a whiff 
to shoot you in the head and let me sell the yoga mat. Yeah. They made the same amount of money, right? Your other two, uh, you have brick and mortar, but then you said Shopify and then storefronts. How big is Shopify? Um, and then are, do a lot of people just go to the storefront and the website or is the world migrating to more of these way bigger platforms where they search for products? So it's not a black and white answer. What I've kind of found is there are several types of shoppers. There are, there's one type of shoppers who I will actually kind of include myself in this is like, I will go to chrisyogamats.com, read about how they are the best yoga mats and go, okay, I want one. I will fire up a new tab, type Chris's yoga mats into Amazon and buy it on Amazon, right? Because they've got my credit card information, prime shipping, I'm conditioned to do it, et cetera, right? Um, but then there's a, and so there's a whole set of people, myself included, who actually starts their product journey in the Amazon search box. And the latest data I've seen is 55% of shoppers start their product discovery journey, journey on amazon.com in that search box, uh, which means they're never going to see the Shopify site. But the other 45%, start their journey in the Google search box. And those are the people you're going to capture on your Shopify site. Um, so it, it kind of all works together. You know, you've got to, you've got to have both presences. You've got to run the Facebook ads. Some people will click through on the Facebook ad to your website and buy. Some people will fire up a new tab and buy it on Amazon. Um, it's, it's much less isolated than you might think. Dumb question, but I would have, I would have just assumed that given Amazon's uh, dominance that even if I went to Google, the first thing that's going to show up is the Amazon listing anyway. Is that not accurate? <laughs> sometimes sometimes that's very accurate. Yeah, yes. And you know, a lot of brands like us spend a lot of time, effort, and even money on paid Google ads to make sure that our store comes up first. Got it. All right. Let's talk about um, buying these businesses. So to start, you buy 100% of them, you pay all cash. Do you leave the owners intact or is your goal to remove the owners? Uh, what happens? Um, like, what is the strategy with current ownership when you buy a business? So in all of our deals to date, the current owner has gone away. Um, the I am not absolutely religious about this, but it often kind of turns out to be the best thing for everybody involved. So typically the founder is selling because they're burned, right? They're like, they're done. They've been doing it for five, 10 years. You know, they, they're kind of butting up against sort of this glass ceiling of, of, you know, what they're comfortable doing. They're stressed. You know, they want to change. They want to check. So most of the businesses that come to us are already in that paradigm. But the other reason I really kind of want the owner to go typically is we're about to change some stuff, right? Um, and we're, I mean, we're about to, you know, and tell you your baby's a little ugly. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you've got to sit around and watch me do all this stuff, you know, a lot of founders are pretty uncomfortable with it. I mean, we might change some of the way you, we might switch your manufacturer, right? We might, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, founders can be really attached to after years. Um, so, so they typically take a check and, and go away. All right. We're going to play a little back and forth. Uh, so I'm an owner, I'm burnout. I have a brand, you want it. Uh, let's start with how are you going to value the business? And I know you buy businesses of different sizes and maybe we could just pick a certain one that you valued or how do you value these things? Yeah. So to give kind of the listeners a sense for this part of the market we play in, uh, we look for businesses kind of anywhere between two and $15 million of revenue. Um, so that'll put you kind of the ballpark i mean there's way a lot of variation here but ballpark profit margins for an e-commerce business is like 20 ish percent right 20 25 percent ebitda margins right 
So that puts you anywhere between kind of half a million and five million uh, of EBITDA. Just ballpark, right? Um, on the low end of that, so what, what I should say is bigger businesses are worth more, right? Generally, right? Bigger businesses are worth more because they're less fragile. You know, they've proven a little bit. They've de-risked. Can this, can this scale? They typically have more SKUs. They typically have more revenue diversity. Just they typically have a better team in place. They're typically more stable. You know, so bigger businesses, not just in my industry, but across the board are worth more. You know, maybe that's obvious. But um, so on the low end, you know, we're looking for kind of three-ish times EBITDA, you know, maybe three and a half times EBITDA. On the high end, I mean, it can go up to seven or eight. You know, the market is very hot right now. Um, when I got started in 2010, it was kind of three times EBITDA for almost anything. Um, but, you know, the market, the, so debt has come into the market, you know, significantly, which inflates multiples. Uh, these businesses are financeable now, which they didn't used to be. Um, so kind of anywhere between 3x EBITDA on the low end, maybe seven. I mean, I've seen stuff go for 10. I've seen some pet brands go for 15 lately. I mean, just some really crazy numbers going on. It is hot. Um, so that's kind of the range. I can talk a little bit about what makes a business justify the higher end of the range or the lower end of the range. Let's do that. Uh, okay. So kind of that you're, I'll quote better businesses, not meaning to insult the folks who don't fit this criteria, but your more highly valued businesses tend to have channel diversity. Um, so uh, even if they're, and if there's no channel diversity, they will t- tilt toward all Shopify, all direct consumer, right? If you're all Amazon, you're going to get a lower multiple. Um, if you're all retail, you're going to get a lower multiple. If you're all Shopify, you might still get a solid multiple. So you're going to either have a mix of channels or you're going to be all Shopify. Um, you're going to have, you're going to have been around for a while, right? If this business is two years old, there's still a lot of risk in it. Like, is this a fad or not? If it's 10 years old and it's been growing solidly, you know, that's a more valuable business. There's more there, there. Um, speaking of growth, you know, you'll typically see some growth on the most highly valued businesses. Um, I mean, if they're growing 50 to hundred percent a year, like that's a rocket ship, you know, because if you're growing hundred percent a year, eight X today is four X tomorrow right? One year from now. Um, so you'll tend to get a higher multiple uh, with faster growth. Um, you'll tend to get a higher multiple if there's a team in place. Uh, you'll tend to get a lower multiple if it's kind of a hustler with help, right? Um, and kind of everything runs through the founder and the founder's leaving. Um, so the, the, I mean, those are just a few things. Uh, and you get a, get a better multiple with better margins. You get a better multiple. You definitely get a better multiple if you're selling your own product. If you're just reselling other people's products, that's not worth a lot really anymore. Um, you want to kind of see that branded product with brand recognition. And when you talk about brand, you think about a two to fifteen million dollar revenue business. It's not like Apple, like the ultimate brand of all brands. But are you ever paying goodwill or some additional money because the brand is is so great that it commands it? Or at, at this size of uh, of I know every I know every founder probably thinks they have the best brand, but. Um, are there are there any brands at that level that you really pay up for? It's still early enough to say that, you know, it's a great brand, but it's something that could go away in a year if it was managed poorly. Chris, you're gonna you're gonna trigger me here because like we joke uh at Elements Brands that like uh one of the most common, you know, seller fallacies we hear, and in quotes, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, the brand alone is worth X million dollars. And I'm like, 
No, it's not. Or you would be selling that much. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, then why are you not selling this much? Yeah. Right. Um, so sort of no, I pay for what the brand enables. Right. So like if the brand is enabling you to build a good business with sticky customers that is growing, then yes, that brand is going to command a higher valuation. If you have like a nice logo and cool name, no, we don't pay for that, right? Because uh, it turns out that actually does not matter very much. Okay. All right. So I've, I've come to you. I'm, I'm Chris's yoga mats is definitely on the high end. We're going to be commanding a big multiple. But before I get into kind of how a transaction looks, how would I have found you? How do you get deal flow? How do I, obviously you've been around 11 years, you know, the, the industry really well, but how have you positioned yourself to where somebody would, you know, call Omaha and say, you know, Hey, Bill, I'm ready to finally sell. And I know the, the drill hundred percent, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, so this helps. So thank you for having me on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're going to get do so do much deal flow from this. You're going to wish we did it again. Uh, can't wait. Um, although, you know, I actually do get a lot less than people might think from, you know, kind of doing stuff like this. Um, we have, we have in-house corp dev, so we do a lot of outreach. Um, so we're doing, you know, we're going to trade shows, at least pre COVID, you know, we're, we're reaching out to sellers. We've got some kind of proprietary ways we're scouring the market to try to identify, like, you know, do we think this brand is in our size target range? And then we'll look at it manually and go, is this a product we like? Is this a brand we like? you know, we'll put it on a list and we will, we will not like in an automated way, we will email them personally and try to call them, you know, and try to get the owner on the phone. Um, there's also a lot of these brands that are, that are for sale. I've been repped by a broker. I mean, like just in market, you know, the seller, it's very common. The seller decides he wants to sell, uh, and he hires a broker. Um, so we spend a lot of time kind of actively maintaining broker relationships, you know, so we make sure that the broker thinks of us, yep. you know, and make sure we see that, see that deal when it comes to market. Cool. All right. So we've agreed on value. Uh, you're going to pay me more than you've ever paid for any company, which I'm glad they are good yoga mats, despite that one review. What uh, walk me through what happens from the day we've had lunch and kind of verbally kind of said, let's do this to the day you own my business. Yep. So I kind of like to say it's 90 days from nice to meet you to check in your bank account. Uh, it's about how fast we can go. Um, the other, the Thrasio of the world will claim they can do it in 30 days. Uh, and that's because they don't buy quality businesses, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> uh, and they don't really diligence them, diligence them either. And they don't, you know, contrary to what you might think because of how much capital they've raised, they don't pay top dollar either. Uh, you know, part of their diligence is price. Um, so you know, we're going to actually spend the time to get to know the seller's business. Um, so typically the way it goes is we'll, we'll sign an LOI. Um, and we'll get 90 days of exclusive dating, right? Um, so we that says, hey, seller, you know, Chris, you won't talk to anyone else about buying your yoga mat company. You're only going to talk to us. We're going to start spending money on lawyers and accountants to kind of peel back the onion and look at your books and all this stuff. You're going to start spending time. Like we're going to invest in this relationship now, like real money and time um, over the next 90 days to get toward close. Um, during that time, we'll be talking to our bank. We'll be getting that. We've been teaching them about your business too, you know, making sure that, you know, they're good to back it, which we do not have a problem with because um, they're kind of signed up to back us to buy these types of businesses. So we go, hey, look, there's another one right over home plate. And they go, here we go. Um, so it's really 90 days of just teach us how your business works, where the dollars come and go from, what the big growth opportunities are, et cetera. Um, and it, typically the timeline depends a lot on the seller. 
Uh, if the seller is like super on it, we will close in 45 to 60 days. Uh, but typically the seller is also running their business. And so no fault of their own, you know, they take a few days to get back to us frequently. So it, it can be 90 days is what we shoot for. Do they, I would imagine at this size, are they, do they have audited financials? Probably not. And are you doing a quality of earnings or anything during your process? No, absolutely not. Okay. Um, the, I, like I will give you what is much more typical is we bought a business. I flew to the guy's house in Kansas, walked in his front door and said, let me see your records. And he handed me his credit card statements and a yellow legal pad. And he said, have at it. Uh, and I reconstructed his financial statements, you know, from scratch. That is much more typical of what we see. Uh, if they have a broker, the broker will have done some of it, but of course you can't trust it because who's he work for, right? So you, you really have to go, and that's what happens during diligence, right? You're you're taking that time to go back to the source material uh, and kind of agree on what actually is happening here. So a lot of a lot of folks, um, you know, these smaller businesses, they could be really founder dependent. Obviously, your strategy is that the founder kind of becomes useless to you, not in a negative way, but post close. Um, so pro so a lot of your due diligence is getting to know the team. I'm assuming you're asking team members, like how important really is this guy, or does that really not matter to you is how do you get around, you know, somebody that could be so pivotal to the business, even if they're burnt out? Yeah. It, so it's really hard. And this is, this is actually an advantage that we have over someone that might be buying their first business. Um, <laughs> no problem. So an advantage we have is that we have infrastructure, right? So even if this business is founder dependent and typically a founder will stick around for like, you know, a, a month or two after close to just kind of help us with transition, you know, and that, and stick around means answer my phone, answer the phone when I call you. Right. That's about it. Um, and so we can kind of catch the operation on our operation, right? We've already got a lot of people that can figure it out and then we'll, you know, we'll hire to supplement our team, uh, et cetera. Um, but that's one of the hardest things in diligence is to understand like, who's good and who's not and you know how are who's going to stick around and who's not um because you got to kind of rely on what the founder tells you you can't really interview these people or very often they get spooked right oh god the business is being sold etc um so we have to kind of trust the founder up until close and then kind of the first thing we do post close is you know get to know the employees meet with them all one on one understand what they do in their job you know and then kind of make that evaluation to see if the conclusions we drew from meeting with the founder were correct or if we need to modify them all right. I want to talk about organizational structure. And part of this will be, I just sold my business to you. So the founder leaves, um, I, it's kind of a two-part discussion. So the one is going to be what, what's your corporate look like shared, maybe shared services or something of that nature. So if I just sold to you and I'm out, are my, is my team staying wherever they live or are you moving the team to Charlotte? Highly dependent. So it depends on what you're doing in, in your facility. Um, if you are the folks that are shipping boxes in your facility, like we're probably moving that function to Charlotte, right? I mean, there's just too much synergy there. Like we don't, we don't need a separate warehouse, you know, in, in Fort Worth, right? We just don't need it. Um, so that is probably coming to Charlotte. Um, when it comes to like, if you've got people coming to your office doing marketing and sales and stuff like that, uh, we are super open to keeping them on remotely. Uh, or moving them to Charlotte. Um, we have, we've bought brands and, and had plenty of team members move to Charlotte because it's kind of pre-pandemic. You know, we've bought brands and, and said, Hey, like, you're great. Oh, you don't want to move to Charlotte. That's fine. You know, work from home. Um, and, and we allow that too. So like, there's, there's definitely a place for, for great people. Um, it's just, and there would be a, a, a place for great 
folks who worked in warehouse and ship boxes too, except people just tend not to move cross country for those types of jobs. But if, and if they wanted to, we would be super open to that as well. Yep. Okay. So you, but you have 60 employees and I'm going to try and ask this the right way. Is that made up of all the employees that work on each different business that you own? Or is that 60 employees that are like a shared service unit that are providing services to additional employees that are actually in the businesses? No, that's the whole company. Okay. Um, so that's the whole company. Yep. So we kind of the, the what you're getting at is a split between what's shared and what's siloed. Um, so for us, we kind of split our business into three sections, uh, marketing, operations, and sales. Um, so operations is, uh, anything that, that works with our supply chain, anything that ships a box, anything that counts the beans, HR, kind of all that, all that is shared, you know, because if you're in, if you're an ops, you know, a widget's a widget, a widget, like, you know, it's just a barcode to you. Um, it's, it's just the SKU to you. Um, so that is all shared and we actually invest a lot of time and money and make sure that that team is strong because it's kind of the giant on the shoulders of which everything else sits. Uh, cause you can't ship a box, you don't get paid. Um, and if you don't have anything to ship, you don't get paid. Um, so then on the marketing side, uh, we are, we've experimented with so many structures on the marketing side, everything from totally split by brand individual teams to everybody works on everything. Um, the way we're currently doing it is split by industry. So I mentioned to you, we focus on pet and skincare. So we have a pet team and a skincare team. Um, and kind of one of my strong beliefs about marketing is it's very difficult for a marketer to work on more than kind of three or four brands at once because you have to be very schizophrenic right? Especially if those brands are very different audiences. So like when we used to own a brand called Ski Bomb, uh, which was targeted at, at skiers who get windburn, right? On their faces. And you got to switch from talking to a skier snowboarder to talking to a 60 year old woman who cares about organic skincare. Like it's just, it's a big context switch. So it's very hard to go deep on any one of those audiences. So what we're working with now is because we've niched down to just kind of these two industry verticals and thus kind of customer sets, right? skincare and pet, you know, we think we might be able to run more, you know, closer to the four brands per industry group. So marketing is organized per industry group and everybody in that industry group works on all of our brands in that industry group. Uh, and then sales also is a shared service works on everything again, like marketing in an industry group. And the reason for that is, you know, skincare products and pet products, typically not the same retailers, right? So like, you know, PetSmart is not carrying anti-aging cream, you know, and Ulta is not carrying pet stuff. So, you know, on the sales side, you got to kind of have those retailer relationships, but then you can sell them multiple brands, right? Multiple placements in the store. Um, and there's a, actually a lot of cross-sell synergy in selling multiple brands into the same retailers. So that's how we organize the sales department. So it's kind of a mix of shared service uh, and, and by industry group. So if I'd sold you my other company, Chris's screen, uh, skincare, and I had an amazing marketer on my team and you were ingesting the team, would that marketer join and maybe originally still be marketing that product, but eventually migrate into a role where they're over several products? Yes, absolutely. You know, because we want to say, hey, like, what do you know? What has really worked for this, for Chris's skincare? And can we apply it to our other skincare brands? Right. And then periodically we try to combine the pet and skincare teams and say, Hey, what's working in skincare? Might that work in pet? 
yeah, yeah. you know, and by vice versa. Okay. Um, on the team subject, something that you and I have connected on, uh, is culture index, um, a way to, uh, evaluate the traits of who somebody is before you evaluate the work they can actually do. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how that was kind of a game changer for you? I, I know it was for me and, and why it's important to you. Yeah, this is, it's so funny. Like the more people I talk to, I say culture index, I feel it's like the, like a the Illuminati of like business, like no one talks about it, but as soon as you say it, people are like, I do that too. It's, it's so, you know, so important. Um, but so culture index is, you know, one of many, I'm not, this is not an ad for culture index, you know, they're, they're predictive index, there's Colby, like there's a bunch of other ones. Uh, although I caution people against Myers-Briggs, like that's quite old and semi-debunked at this point, um, better than nothing, but um, I would not use it in kind of hiring and uh, management decisions. Um, so there's kind of this whole class of uh, personality profiling or trait measurement. Um, and it what it helps you do is understand what someone is great at and what brings them joy to do and what really stresses them out to do. Um, you know, sort of the, the, there a couple there's, and there, it measures you on seven traits, you know, uh, some people, uh, and you, I think everybody kind of under, intuitively understands if you're in a group, like there are some people that just intuitively, they're like, yep, I'm the group leader, yeah. like fall in line <laughs> behind me. Now, sometimes that's healthy. Sometimes that's not right. Yeah. But that's who that person is. And there's also people in that group who would never want to be the group leader. Right. Um, and, and that makes them very uncomfortable. You know, there's also some people who, uh, are very extroverted. Some people are very introverted. You know, like if there's birthday cake in the office, some people are like, Ooh, cake. And they, you know, they hang out and they talk to everybody. And, you know, then you have to be like, okay, go back to work. Some people go, they're like, thanks for the cake. I'll be at my desk. Right. Like those are very different types of people. And, you know, they do well and are happy in different types of roles. Um, so we've spent a ton of time kind of scoping what types of people are happy in the roles that we have. And then frankly, we just try to hire people that will like their job uh, and be good at it. And when you like your job, you know, you're good at it typically. Um, so matching that, and it is shocking the number of people who apply for and have jobs that they don't like and have no hope of being good at. Really. Yep. It's been um, the absolute it's, game It's just crazy. I tell people, and I try not to oversell it, there's probably three or four things I can point to throughout the life of our business that have been impactful beyond measure and culture index is one of them. So I'm glad we share that. All right. A big part of your uh, industry is online marketing and being present online. Um, and there's a lot going on. I mean, I've even our friend uh, Patrick uh, put a thread out the other day about, you know, Facebook's new algorithms and, you know, Apple's changing their deal and there's kind of, it seems like from an outsider, not in, there's kind of this war going on. So let's just kind of talk about that. Um, what is going on? Are we learning that we shouldn't be so dependent on only Facebook ads? Are there other channels? It's a big, I'm asking a lot of questions, but let's just start with like frame the situation of what's going on with online advertising. Yes. So there is a tempest in the online advertising world right now. Uh, and it is called the Tempest of iOS 14.5. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is, this is I'm going to keep this simple here, but this is a, basically what this is, is Apple flexing their market power uh, against Facebook um, and making it much more difficult for Facebook to identify and track people who use iOS devices. Uh, the end result of that 
is that Facebook's algorithms are now much blinder than they used to be and much less good at allocating your ad dollars to show ads to the right people. You know, there's like that that old joke in advertising, like 50% of my ad dollars are wasted, but I just don't know which half, right? Kind of the original thing that made Facebook so incredible is like, it didn't waste any of your ad dollars. Like if I was running a, an ad for a dog product, it would only show it to people who had dogs, right? Um, if I show it to someone who doesn't have a dog, like that's a wasted impression, right? I paid money for that impression and it, there's no chance of converting. Um, so what's basically happening now is Facebook has, has been forced, they've gotten, they've gotten blinded, so it's taken a major step back. So now essentially, then simplifying, Facebook is now not, can't tell who has a dog and who doesn't. So they're now back to showing our ads to a bunch of people who don't have dogs which has decreased the efficiency of our ad spend dramatically. Uh, not just us, uh, a lot of data there. Uh, I saw data set on 204 DTC e-com brands uh, that the efficiency of Facebook ad spend has declined by about 44% since this rolled out in May-ish. Um, so what that means is you basically, if you want to make the same revenue, you're going to spend 44% more money. Uh, because your ad is your ads are less efficient, you're wasting more money. That's forty four percent more wasted spend, right? You, but you just don't know which forty four percent it is, and neither does Facebook. Um, and so that means if you're if previously you know you're an ecom company and your ads were twenty percent of sales, your ads are now thirty percent of sales, right? And that drops straight to the bottom line. So if you had a twenty percent EBITDA margin, you now have a ten percent EBITDA margin, um, and that's bad. But actually, there are brands out there who have it way worse because their ads were 40% of sales. So now their ads are 60% of sales, right? And there's not much room for anything else. So they're being faced with some very tough decisions to make, you know, uh, about how to cut this spend and shrink their business, et cetera, because they're very dependent on Facebook. Um, so kind of the, the antidote to this is to be less dependent on Facebook. Uh, ironically, to be more dependent on other platforms like Amazon, right? Amazon totally unaffected by this because they control the entire conversion path, right? You can show someone an ad on Amazon and Amazon can see them all the way through to buy the thing. Whereas Facebook can't see that, right? You're going to bounce them to another site and Apple's not, is going to break that visibility chain now uh, for Facebook. So uh, spending more on some other advertising networks, we're spending a lot more on Snapchat now uh, and TikTok. Uh, which is entirely different, you know, ad format. So we're having to learn that. We're actually running some TV ads now uh, on kind of some streaming, some direct response. So like learning to diversify, you know, the ads, the ad spend. Um, but also, you know, a brand like us is more insulated because, yeah, we do some Facebook ads, but we've got Amazon and we got wholesale. You know, wholesale totally unaffected by this, right? So ads for us are less, you know, for some businesses, the Facebook ads are the entire oxygen of the whole business. And they're really hurting right now. And was was iOS 14.5 only directed at Facebook or was it directed at uh, stopping data tracking across anything that was on in the App Store? Uh, anything, but it's 98% Facebook, you know, is, is really, you know, that that's why it happened. And you guys see, you know, Tim Cook goes on the news and he's like, Apple's competitive to your privacy you know, and, and Apple has decided, right, to make privacy like a like a marketing thing for him. Like they're going to put a stake in the ground that Apple's about privacy. Really, Apple's about screwing Facebook. 
like what like when you see when you see Tim Cook saying that, like what he's saying is like, wait a minute, Facebook is using our platform to make billions of dollars in advertising profit. We're not making any billions of dollars of advertising profit. Let's turn the screws on Facebook. And by the way, uh, if you go on like Apple's careers page, they around the same time they turn this on, they've been hiring like crazy ad executives. They're launching their own ads network. It's coming. Like this is not about consumer privacy at all. This this is about market power, which is fine. Just, you know, I just would like it if they would say that. Is there any, uh, I have not read anything on it, but how has Facebook reacted to this? Are they, obviously they're a big behemoth with a lot of money. They're going to fix this. How are they going to fix it? Yep. So they are freaking out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They're absolutely freaking out. They're, you know, nearly a trillion dollars of Facebook market cap relies on them fixing this. So I actually do have a lot of confidence that this will get fixed. But right now, you know, advertisers are kind of caught in the middle. People who've built their their business on Facebook ads are kind of caught in the middle right now. So Facebook actually just put out, uh, it's September 23rd today when we're recording this. Yesterday, Facebook put out kind of like a note to sellers that was the most transparent communication I've ever seen that basically said, we know we are working as hard as we possibly can to fix performance. We're sorry. Uh, which was an incredible level of transparency. The, the stock dropped 5% when they put it out. It was so, it was so candid. Um, so, and like, and you know, but we've been feeling it for months because like uh, they're pushing updates to the Facebook algorithm, you know, nearly weekly at this point, like trying to fix it, which is making Facebook ads a very volatile place to be right now. Um, and so we're kind of riding it out. And luckily we have kind of the buffer of our other channels. Is there even a chance that Mark, Zuckerberg calls Tim Cook and says, let's share the ad revenue. Tur- like, like oh, 100%. Roll back. Yes. All that's on the table. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I don't know how they're going to fix it, but they have to fix it. And so these companies that were 40% now at 60% and they're kind of bankrupt, are were a lot of these businesses solely just reliant on Facebook ads? I mean, for a while, it was like, if you spend the money on Facebook, you're going to make money. It's it's pretty much a virtuous cycle. Um and that's for those companies, it's it's just tough luck right now. Yeah, I mean, it's like Facebook ads is cocaine, right? Like it just makes it's you put money in, you put a dollar in, two dollars come out, right? So like, how are you not going to then put two dollars in and four dollars come out? And then you put four, right? Like, like you're going to keep doing it, spending more. You can't not do it, right? And so, but before you know it, you're addicted to cocaine, right? And that's the position a lot of these brands are in where huge portions of their revenue are relying on this this Facebook machine. And just like all of a sudden, they can't get any more cocaine. Is this something right? you had thought about for a while? Like before it all happened, was it did it keep you up at night that we're really beholden to one giant? Or was it did it catch everybody off guard? Uh, so it didn't really catch everybody off guard. I mean, this was Telegraph starting like last fall, like a year ago. Like everybody knew this was coming. Um, but of course they were addicted to cocaine. Like, what are you going to yeah. do? Stop. Yeah. You know, you know? Uh, so, uh, like people knew it was coming, but like, you know, kind of that, like now that now the crack pipe is gone, right. The needle has been ripped out. Um, so now everybody of course is feeling it and freaking out. Um, but the savvy operators, you know, did see it coming and had been making moves to diversify. And yeah, it kept me up a lot, you know, for years, that we were very dependent on Facebook, but of course we were printing money on Facebook as well. So, um, so what, you know, we had actually spent a lot of time cultivating that Amazon channel, cultivating the wholesale channel, cultivating affiliates, influencers, cultivating email marketing, 
you know, SEO, like, you know, kind of the full marketing stack. So you have like a diversified portfolio of customer acquisition, not just Facebook. Does it worry you at all? Let's, you said that it's 98% Facebook. You're testing Snapchat. You're testing TikTok. Let's just, I'm giving an extreme example. Let's say a week from now, TikTok had the magic bullet and all of a sudden that became the new thing. And now everybody goes and rushes into TikTok. Is there the fear now that Apple will just go, oh, we're releasing Apple or iOS 15.0 now and TikTok will be affected by it? So, yeah, this is sort of like the constant cat and mouse game of digital advertising, which is that a new platform comes out. It's great. And then everybody figures out it's great. And like all the ad dollars rush in and right, the right, it gets less great because um, all the competition. Um, and but the same what Apple's going to do is, as I mentioned, they're launching their own ad network. So it's not that they don't want the consumers to see ads. It's that they want the brands to pay them for the ads rather than paying Facebook for the ads. So you as the advertiser, you just got to surf it. Like, I can't wait till Apple launches their ad network. I will gladly pay. Like, I don't care who I pay. Right. You know, I, I don't care who collects the toll. Like, like paying the toll is built in my business model. Um, I just want somebody to sell me access to the customer. It doesn't really matter. So you need to you know, be able to flow between what are the best ways to get in front of the customer this quarter or this year. Right. And, and ride those waves as the landscape changes. And just to close out this, as of right now, there's no kind of, you know, second place. Everybody's kind of scrambling to figure out how to replace Facebook. And we're in that spot right now, or is there, is there a, is there something that's emerging as becoming the next thing exclusive of Apple and what we know they're going to do? Is there anything else that's kind of interesting to you? The, the thing that has emerged as the next the next thing is, in fact, the old thing, which is like good marketing, right? It's a diversified portfolio of customer acquisition. But of course, no one wants that. No, everybody just wants the new cocaine, right? And there is at present no one-for-one -one replacement for the cocaine right now. Of your 60 people, how many of them are... I'm getting a sense that it's heavy marketing. I mean, it's 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 the business. Obviously, you got to make the products and get it out there. But of your 60 people, how many people are focused on digital marketing, SEO, you know, pushing product online? 25 or so, um, you know, ish, maybe 30. Uh, so it's, you know, pushing half the company. Um, it, it's, we think about it a lot. I mean, we basically are building an in-house agency, right? Two parallel in-house agencies, one for skincare, one for pet. I was just going to go there. So you, you have this in-house agency. I'm assuming there's a team that's working on the creative, the way to present it, the good marketing. And then there's a team taking that product that's, you know, good at all the algorithms and how to put it online and, and get it to those people. Like, how's that team kind of made up? Yeah. So we've got, uh, again, I we're kind of big on in-source, right? So we've got graphic designers, photographers, videographers, like all that work for us. You know, so we have, we want to outsource as little as possible. So, you know, we got some people who are really good at buying Facebook ads or Instagram ads or Snapchat, ad, Snapchat ads, whatever, right. That's a media buyer. Um, and, you know, and they'll say like, Hey, I'm trying to make an ad with, you know, with this type of content. And so they'll get the photographer and the graphic designer, like, and a copywriter, like all in the room. And like in real time, like they'll conceive of this ad, they'll make like multiple variations. Uh, and then they'll throw them all into the Facebook algorithm and let actual performance test and figure out which of these is the best ad, right? I don't know whether the text should be, you know, red or yellow. Let's just see which one performs the best, right? So that, I mean, that is, you know, a huge part of what we do is think about how we're going to speak to this customer. What do they want to hear? 
you know, and, and then how do we take that message and put it in an ad that makes them stop scrolling? Yep. Got it. All right. Um, before we get into, I want to talk about what the end game is, but um, the other hot topic right now, which is not just in e-commerce, it's in anything that requires parts in a supply chain is supply chains are F right now. Um, I'm in YPO. I've got a lot of friends that are in, in manufacturing businesses. I mean, just across the board, we're in a tough spot. How, how, are, how are you reacting to that? Obviously, you do a lot of in-house manufacturing. Maybe that's a defense mechanism for you, but How's it impacting you? And then kind of what are your thoughts on the the situation in general? Yeah. So the situation in general is that the entire global supply chain is in shambles at the moment. Um, like as we sit here and record this, there are about 100 container ships floating off the coast of Los Angeles waiting to dock at Port LA um, because they can't. Like they're like the port is all backed up. And because of that, you know, there's plenty of ships not even leaving Asia. Right. So the, the stock is piling up on docks in Asia, like just major backlogs. Uh, as a data point, it used to cost about $3,500 to bring a container from Shenzhen to LA. Um, it now costs about $28,000. So nearly 10 times as much if you can get a booking. Right. So, like, you can just imagine what that cost increase and that capacity constraint has done to every, I mean, anything that comes from Asia, like has to go through this bottleneck, right? Um, so it's really wrecking a ton of stuff. If you, by the way, side note, buy your Christmas presents now in September, like it's going to be so bad uh, in Q4. Um, so that's what's going on, right? Is that we can't get anything into the country. And then also once it's here, the carriers, the, the FedExes, both services, UPS of the world, there is not enough room on the trucks already for all the boxes. Like there's just not enough trucks. There's too many boxes. Um, so FedEx has already come back to us and said during holiday this year, there's going to be a $2.50 surcharge per package, which is pretty crazy when you consider the rate is like $5 a package. Uh, so like that's a 50% cost increase, right? Uh, at peak. So, you know, it's, it's totally junked up like every from end to end, right? Um, and this is causing a lot of pain, a lot of stuff to go out of stock. Um, for us, I made a kind of smart decision that in retrospect turned out to be a genius decision uh, for the wrong reasons, but I got lucky. Um, and this was this was back in you know February 2020, you know, and COVID's kind of not a thing yet. Like we're all kind of blissfully ignorant, but it's kind of going on in China. Uh, and I'm on Twitter enough and I'm talking to supply chain people and other e-com people. And I'm like, this is going to be a problem. Like, I think this might be a problem for a few weeks, maybe a month or two, you know, where <laughs> we might, we might have a problem getting, getting stuff. So why don't we just buy some more stuff? So I, you know, we kind of got everybody around. We looked at our supply chain, which by the way, is almost entirely domestic. You know, we manufacture everything here in the States, but you know, they get stuff from Asia, right? So nobody is immune even if you manufacture in the States. Um, so we kind of looked for Asia exposure and brought in a year of inventory. I mean, we invested millions of dollars mm -hmm. in February, 2020. And I thought, you know, we'll sell it anyway. But like, if I can't get this stuff for a month, like I don't want to miss some sales. And then of course, COVID happened and I looked like a genius. Um, but I, I, did, I didn't, I had not intended, I thought it would be, you know, a couple of weeks. And I just said, let's invest a couple million bucks here. Um, and then, so we just kept that up. So like, I've just absolutely kept the hammer down. So we're carrying 
now, like we used to carry like three months of inventory. We're carrying like nine to 12 months of inventory right now, which is really the only antidote to all this is more safety stock. But the problem is if you didn't figure that out till right now, you can't get the safety stock. So what it was is I got really lucky and we were ahead of the curve right before this all jumped up. And now we've just been able to keep it up because we're not having to build stock into the face of this, which is what everybody else is trying to do. I, I had, I would talk with Molson Hart uh, and he had bringing up the LA port. He had just kind of made a comment that, you know, China runs 24 hours. They're not unionized in America. Our ports are running 16 hours with unionized, which our government employee or whatever they, they, you know, they're not working. They have COVID blah, 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 blah. Um, is, has there been anything said? I, I thought I read something where Biden said unions are now going to work 24 hours. Is that, that's, is that one piece of the solution? Um, that's a super small piece. I mean, that will help for sure. That will help. Right. I mean, obviously, right. It will make, it will increase the throughput by 33%. Uh, I think it's a very interesting political pickle, by the way, for Joe Biden, not to digress into politics. Right. But like he's got, he's now in the position where he has got to come down on this union. Right. And go like, guys like stop like work right which you can imagine is is a tough place for a democratic president to be yeah i'm telling people to work um yes (laughs) uh broadly (laughs) uh so i mean but just generally right to be be a a pro-union candidate and now having to put the screws to a union right so we'll see if that actually happens but that's kind of what's going on in the news right now um but that only fixes I don't even know if it fixes. That only increases the throughput at Port LA by 33%. That doesn't do anything about the fact that FedEx is out of trucks, you know, plus all the freight that's sitting in Shenzhen and, and everywhere else trying to get on boats. Doesn't There's a shortage of the actual containers, the metal boxes, right? They're all in the wrong places, right? In the So even if you have freight ready to go, like you don't might not have a box to put it in. Um, there's a shortage of containers. I mean, there's just, it's so gummed up. It's unreal. Yep. It's going to take years to sort this out. Take years and we don't go into it, but I think it would be a huge entrepreneurial opportunity for, I I bet there's a lot of brains and money there. There's going to be a, I have to imagine a rebirth of some type of new supply chain that comes out of this, uh, which is a net positive, but it's going to take a while to get there. Yeah. It's so interesting too, because there's, I mean, also like, I don't want to like discount our large American corporations, like the FedEx of the world who have a major incentive to fix this, right. And to invest billions of dollars of capital. But the problem is, like, imagine you're the FedEx capital allocator, right? You're like, do I invest $20 billion in more trucks or is this temporary, right? Because if I'm wrong, now I've got way too many trucks and I'm bankrupt, right? Do I buy more planes and, you know, do I actually make this capital investment? You know, so like, I think the whole industry is like, I don't know, like, like we definitely need more trucks, but, you know, I need to need trucks for 10 years in order to buy them. So I think that's kind of where we are from a capital investment point of view. Well, and the irony of it of it all is people can charge more for products because they're scarce. FedEx is charging two fifty extra. There, everybody's actually making not everybody, but a lot of people are actually making more money even with the crunch. And so that again, that incentive is like, I know we're selling less, but we're making more. You know, so it's a. It's yeah, a I know conundrum. this sucks for all of you, but like my P and L looks great. Right. Right. It's. It, yeah, I mean, you the, hear uh, it all. The everywhere. global shippers. Yeah, the uh, like the Maersks, like all the huge global shipping companies, are having absolutely insane record profits, like multiples of their prior records, um, to the point where they have now, like, I think they're starting to catch some heat. And a couple of them had said, like, okay, we're not raising prices anymore. Like, 
you know, from, from like a goodwill point of view, because they're making so much money. All right. What's the kind of big, hairy, audacious goal? Like, what are you going to do with this business? You own these businesses forever. You have permanent capital. Obviously, you want to grow the businesses that you buy, probably buy more. But like, what, where, where does this all end for you? Or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> maybe it doesn't. I kind of hope it does. This baby so, that's, that you're delivering in the next week, maybe this is their empire. I don't know. What, what, what's your vision? Oh, well, I, th- I think maybe uh, how to deal with wealth and kids and family companies, I think is a whole topic for a whole other podcast. Um, uh, a fascinating topic too. But um, as far as kind of Elements Brands itself, uh, you know, I started this company. I want this to be a company that I want to come to work at, you know, for the rest of my career. Uh, I want to have at least have the option. I'm building this company. I'm not building this company to be sold. Um, so like when we raised, I, I mentioned we only did one round of fundraising. And when we did that, you know, I talked to a lot of people and everybody asked, they're like, well, how do I get my money back? Right? Like, what's your exit plan? Um, what's your liquidity plan? And, you know, obviously the right answer is, well, you know, we're going to, you know, we can take it public or we're going to sell it to Procter and Gamble or, you know, whatever. And you describe some plan. I gave everybody the intentional wrong answer, which is that we're never going to sell this company. We're going to build a big company and you're going to get your money back in dividends over time. And a lot of people were like, have fun with that. Right. Like I, you know, I need, I need a way to get my money back. Right. Which is fine. Right. Um, but the money that we took, I mentioned is family office money that has a much more aligned long-term time horizon. Um, so you kind of, um, and you know, my, one of my, my mentor and our kind of our lead investor, you know, he says, look, if you, a good business will always be valued highly by the market, right? So if you build a good, durable business, you will always have the option to sell it, right? You know, like, yeah, like if Procter Gamble wants to call me tomorrow and offer me an insane number, like I will take that phone call. Like we will have a discussion, right? Um, so like, I'm not going to sit here and say like, we will never sell this business. I'm going to die in this chair, right? But we're trying to build something that we never have to sell that is not built to sell. We're trying to build a, a good business for the long term. Love it. All right. A couple more. I know you're busy. Um, what do, what, this is on kind of failure and challenges. Uh, what do most people get wrong when they start their first product? Um, maybe something you learned along the way that you would have done differently. Uh, two things. Uh, one, they only get feedback from their friends and family. Um, they tell their friends and family the idea and what's your friend? They love you. What are they going to say? That's a great idea, Chris, right? It's great. Like I would totally buy that, right? Which is fine. But what you should say next is the entrepreneur. Great. It's $20. Give me $20. Right. And then you're going to figure out what their real answer is. Right. But even still, they might still love you $20 worth. So I would strongly encourage people to ask folks who do not love them $20 worth if they will give them $20, uh, for the product or whatever. So there's that. Um, and then Following your passion is the other one uh, as far as products. Like, and this is a double-edged sword because some people like kind of live their passion and like it's rock climbing and they invent a, invent a rock climbing widget and they're like the best brand ambassador and it's awesome. But kind of the field of dreams mentality, if you build it, they will come is not true, right? Like it does not matter if this is the best rock climbing widget ever and like you're super passionate about rock climbing. Uh, probably just talking about it at your rock climbing gym is not going to be enough you know, to make this thing work. Like you, you need to pick a product in a market that is big enough and that you can reach via advertising, right. In a compelling way, you know, so you can put actually put the product in front of people so they have a chance to buy it. 
So kind of, I think the, the other mistake here is thinking if you build a great product, like it's the business is just going to work. You need to build a business around the great product. And then as far as like ad spend goes, is, is there a, is there a lesson to be learned in, okay, maybe you've gotten feedback. It's a great product, but maybe go sell it locally around town before you start pouring tons of ad dollars into online. Is there a way to start sales that people don't put a lot of marketing dollars at risk before they've really figured it out? Well, so actually I believe the inverse of that is actually best. Like Facebook, you can spend a couple hundred bucks, right? So the, so the, the most effective hundred bucks you will ever spend on Facebook is the first hundred bucks right? Because if I say, if I got a product that appeals most to, you know, good looking 40 year olds that live in Dallas and Fort Worth and run a real estate private equity firm and host a podcast, right? Like Facebook can find a few of those, right? And I could probably spend a hundred, well, at least pre iOS 14.5 right now they're struggling a little bit. Um, but if I, and now if I'm like, okay, but like I've shown it to all the people who fit exactly that description. Now I just need people who live in Dallas, Fort Worth right? Like that's less targeted. So every incremental dollar you spend is less targeted uh, and you get a less of an ROI. So like the first couple sales on Facebook, you ought to be able to get done at a price that makes sense, right? At an ad, at an ad cost that makes sense. And it's actually a lot easier than just walking into, I mean, maybe if it was your own rock climbing gym, like those people are already targeted, but it's a lot easier than walking into a bar, right? Because like most of those people are not relevant to whatever it is you're trying to sell. So I would say the best way to test is with really good ad creative really tightly targeted and say, can I at least get my core audience to buy it and let me use Facebook to find that core audience? Got it. All right. A couple personal ones. We'll bring her home. Um, you're really passionate about teaching entrepreneurship through action. Can you just give a high level of what, what is that and why are you passionate about it? Yeah. So I just don't believe that you can learn entrepreneurship completely 100% in a classroom. Like I have met people that have PhDs in entrepreneurship and have never owned a business. And I do not understand that. Like, I mean, that just does not compute in my brain. Um, so, I mean, I took a class in college uh, and it was the most impactful class project we ever did where my professor, he goes, look, uh, I'm giving you each a hundred dollars um, and you need to start a business. You have two months. Uh, whoever makes the most money gets an A. The second place gets a B, third place gets a C, et cetera. Go. No restrictions, right? Um, and, you know, we did a stupid frat boy business idea and we sold T-shirts, right? We sold funny T-shirts. Um, we took pre-orders, right? And we actually won. We got an A. We, we made like, you know, $15,000 or something, which was like so much money. It was awesome. so much beer, right? <laughs> it was like phenomenal. Um, but like, you know, I learned so much because what I had to do, I had to go door to door and like I knocked on these dorms. I'm like, hi, you want to buy this T-shirt? Wham right? Slam the door in your face. Like, no, like, like re the rejection, like the, oh, our manufacturer is like, well, we don't have that color yellow. Like it's gotta be orange. And I'm like, oh, but the t-shirt says this is a yellow shirt, right? Like you gotta solve problems. Like, like there's just so many things like, you do it. You just get, everybody's a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And like, you have to get punched in the mouth to learn entrepreneurship. So I think there's just such a huge opportunity to teach kids, either college kids or even younger, uh, about, you know, what it's like to start a business. And it doesn't have to be like this, you know, a huge business. It can be, you know, selling burritos, you know, at the local high school football game, like, you know, buy them in bulk at the Mexican restaurant and bring them down to the, you know what I mean? There's just so many things like that that are such great life experiences for kids. And I think we should do more of it. All right. If, uh, if somebody was getting started, what advice would you give them? 
Uh, I would say that you, as I said, should not follow your passion. You should start a good business uh, and you should really make time to talk to other people in your industry who have done it. Um, and not just like, you know, hey, I'd like to pick your brain. I think one or two really, really good personal mentors who are invested in you, either at, at the very least emotionally, at the least, you know, financially, but even better emotionally, you know, both is really ideal. You know, one or two really good ones uh, are better than a whole bunch of coffee conversations. All right, last one. Is there a book? If you only had to read one more book the rest of your life, which one would it be? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Like one I wouldn't get bored of or like one that I could recommend to people. Yeah. Or I could just ask it the the, nor the normal way. What's what's a, the best book you've ever read or one that you often recommend? Oh, I'm going to I'm going to pick one because I mean, I'm sure everybody's read all the major business books. Right. So I'm going to pick one that a lot of people have not heard of that I absolutely love. Uh, and it's like semi out of print, but I think you can get it on Amazon. Uh, it's called Plain Talk uh, by a guy named Ken Iverson. Uh, and Ken was the CEO of Nucor Steel from 1980 to about 2000-ish. He's since passed away. Um, and you might go, well, you know, what does a book about Nucor Steel have to do with you know, business today? Um, but Ken was doing lean startup at Nucor Steel in the freaking 80s when no one even knew what that was. Um, it is just fascinating, like his corporate culture, uh, he, you know, there are like four levels at Nucor between the line guy and the CEO. He talks about, you know, how he built, you know, so when you make steel, right, it's like it's hot metal, you know, it's like a team effort, it's dangerous. Um, and he, he talks about how he created incentive plans for these guys so they would stay safe, but also so they would, you know, increase their output. Uh, so he grew Nucor from 20 million in sales in the 80s to the second largest producer of steel in the world during a time when the steel industry lost 50% of its jobs. So like that's an incredible kind of out of market performance, right? Um, and also during that time, which is fascinating, uh, Nucor never unionized. Their base pay was lower than the average pay in the steel industry, but their pay after incentive comp was 40% higher. Uh, and they never unionized. Um, and it's just fascinating to read about how he did it. Um, and, you know, it was, it's his memoirs written in the, you know, the late nineties or something. Um, and it's, you know, some of it is a little bit on PC for the world of 2020, but I think that's kind of what makes it good. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating case study. We've taken so much of it and used it at Elements Brands. I'm going to read it. And it's short too. You'll blow through it. Even better. Even better. What's the best way for people to reach you or, uh, find element elements, brand elements, brands, elements, brands, both plural. Um, you can go to our website, elementsbrands.com, or you find me on Twitter. I'm at bill DA. Um, I'm, it's probably just way to reach me. Uh, my email box is a disaster, but, um, Twitter's not bad. Um, I would love to love to meet you. If you're a e-com entrepreneur and you're a little bit burned out, you want to sell your brand to a place that's not just going to flip it in a couple of years or, you know, mush it into some giant aggregator. Um, you know, we say that we look for brands that are hidden gems with loyal, loyal followings. So if you feel like that's you, uh, reach out on Twitter or find you know, on our website. There's a form and you know, we'd love to talk. Bill, thanks so much, dude. This was awesome. I really, really enjoyed yeah. it. Sure thing. And we made it through without having any babies. We did. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Chris here again. 
Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.